Lord, thank you for this time. Again, I ask for you to pour your spirit out in our midst. I just want to bless these dear brothers and sisters. And Lord, anyone who's feeling alienated from you tonight, suffering or struggling or, well, you know, Lord, you know what we hide from each other and, and you know what you want to deal with this evening. And so, Lord, I, I'm grateful for a chance to be here. I'm grateful for a chance to open your word. I pray you'd encourage me that you'll encourage each of us as we study together in Jesus' name. Well, Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I'd like to ask the question, can you say that tonight? Could you say to live is Christ and to die is gain? Because I guarantee you this, you can't say the second unless the first is true. If you're living for anything or anyone besides Jesus, to die is not gain. You leave everything and everyone behind. But as we sang, running to your arms. That's literally what's going to happen at the rapture. The trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ rise first. We who are alive and remain caught up together with them, with him. will be in the air with him. And the point is, if I'm living for Jesus, if you're living for Jesus, then the moment we die, we're in the presence of our Lord who died for us, who gave his life for us. Well, the second question I have in the way of introduction is how could a man whose life was dedicated to destroying Christians, a hater of Christ, a hater of Christians, become a lover? How could this persecutor become a pastor? Well, you know the answer, a personal encounter with Jesus. And that's what's happening, well, worldwide. People who have misunderstood or have been abused or misused or taken advantage of or hurt or wounded. And they blame God and they blame the church are realizing, hey, it was never him. It was never him. He's always good. He's always gracious. He's always merciful. He's always, always what we know the scripture says he is. So this persecutor becomes a pastor this this hater becomes a church planter and listen total change of perspective total change of priorities and i know for a fact that's happened with many of you that you lived for yourself because that's what we do we knew no better but once you come to christ and you get how good he is it's lord i want to live for you well Jesus, in John 10, makes some rather striking statements. He says to the Jews who believed in him, by the way, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. The sheep didn't hear him. I am the door. He who enters by me will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill And to destroy, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. That's really what I want to talk about tonight. To live is Christ and to die is gain. It means that, well, I've not just entered into eternal life, but abundant life. And I know again 
lots and lots of Christians that have received God's free gift of everlasting life. Secure in Him. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. So we know when that trumpet sounds, we'll go. But what happens between here and there? It will either be the abundant life He intended, or it will be some weird hybrid. And they're so big today, hybrids, aren't they? But this hybrid of... Well, I'm living for him, but then I, well, I live for me. I'm living for him, but I'm also living for them. I'm living for, well, it's that single-mindedness. Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. And he tells us how it all comes down. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He lived for us, then he died for us. Well, I want to focus then on what Jesus has planned and purposed for all. Abundant life. No, you need to know that the enemy of our souls is real. I'm certain you do if you've studied at all with my brother. But it's important to realize that the Bible isn't loaded with stuff about Satan. In fact, you could take everything the Bible has to say about Satan, and this might shock you because there's books and volumes and tape series and how to deal with them, the whole thing would fill these couple of pages in your Bible. There's just not that much, but there's all we need to know. And and, and the reason I bring that to your attention is, well, there's kind of two extremes in Christianity today when it comes to the enemy of our souls. Some just deny he even exists. It's like, well, if I pretend he's not there, he won't bother me. That's not true at all. And and then the others are like infatuated almost with him. There's so much energy and and press on the enemy and what he's doing. And we could just get paranoid. We could be afraid to leave because he's out there and he's going to get us. But the, the thing is, is he's a conquered foe. But nevertheless, he's still a problem to us. I do want to say this, not in my notes, which is a problem because I have a lot of those. But the enemy isn't your greatest problem, nor is the world. And, you know, we wrestle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The greatest problem of those three, if you're anything like me, the flesh. The one you see in the mirror. Because if there was no Satan at all, I'd still have problems. If there was no Satan at all, I'd still be rebellious. If there was no Satan at all, I would still want what I want. All he can do is tempt me in an area he can see I'm weak. He studies human nature. He's been around a while. So he doesn't tempt me to steal a car because I don't need a car. And I wouldn't steal one if I needed it. But he tempts me to discouragement, something where he could get at me. He tempts me to, well, the point is this. He studies and he tempts you differently than he tempts me. But it's always the same goal. He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. While the Lord comes to give us life and life more abundantly. Now, Second Corinthians, Paul writing to the church at Corinth says, we're not ignorant of his devices, speaking of Satan. But sadly, many today are. And again, that camp that says, oh, I don't know if there's, does it matter if there's a real Satan or if there was a real temptation or if Adam and Eve really fell in the garden? Can I suggest to you it matters? Why? Because if Adam and Eve didn't fall in the garden, how do we account for the fact that every person 
Even our precious little kids or grandkids who start out looking so perfect, but soon start to act like us. How do we account for that? Is it nurture? Is it nature? It's both. If they didn't have your example, they would still sin because we're born sinners. Well, the point again is is this. The enemy is a reactor. He can't create. He can only distort. He can't bless. He can only defile. And so he sees what God's doing. He sees that he blesses people and uses people. And he's like, I'm going to destroy people and I'll use them to destroy other people. So the enemy looks at God and wants to do exactly. In fact, he wants what God alone deserves, our worship. If you've never read it, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, the two passages that deal specifically with the fall of Satan. Well, Jesus gives us the the antidote. He gives us a prescription. If you continue in my word, abide in my word, I think the King James or New King James, I get confused between the two. He says, then you'll be my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, Jesus is telling us that his word, it will counteract every lie of the enemy. And you should know that Satan not only is real, he is a liar. And according to our Lord, the father of lies, he says, when he speaks a lie, he's just speaking his native language. He's a liar and the father of lies. He is a tempter, yes, but again, he can't tempt me to do something I have no interest in doing anyway. He's the accuser of the brethren. And it's important to remember that that if you're married, hey, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And, And I noticed that Jesus never, ever, 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 ever accuses his bride. You who are brides might appreciate that. He never accuses. No, he knows everything about us. He came to deliver us from our sin, to cover our sin. Love covers a multitude of sins. So when a husband is accusing his wife or a wife or husband, let the enemy talk to you. Let the enemy talk through you. Well, four thieves. That's what we're going to consider. And I'm going to be relatively short, not just shorter than my brother, but, you know, physical stature, but shorter just because, well, I'm jet lagged and I'll, I'll do good and then I'll just fall off the stool. And so um, circumstances, the first thief, these are four ways Paul in Philippians in the four chapters, by the way, it's kind of an overview of Philippians, something the Lord's just been working on in me. But, but circumstances can rob us. The enemy can use the circumstances, the situations, the time we find ourselves in, the trials we find ourselves in, to steal our joy, to, 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 to kill the, the potential that's in us, to destroy something that's so beautiful in the sight of God, his precious baby Christians growing in him. Well, Paul's passion, and many again, I'm sure aware, was to share the Lord with his Jewish brethren. But God had another plan. And I've seen this a lot. He'll take somebody that seems perfectly suited for what they think. This is how God's going to use me. Maybe you're in that place, younger Christian, 
or you've come back to the Lord and you're like, well, this would be a natural fit. God's going to do this because, hey, why wouldn't he? Paul, you see, was perfectly suited to go to the Jews because he was a Pharisee. He, 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 was, he was born of the tribe of Benjamin. He was raised in the law. He did his best to keep it. He was regarded. He was respected, discipled by one of the greatest teachers of his day. So, so he looked at himself, and, and once he had come to Christ, he's like, oh, man, I just want to go tell my brethren. And the Lord's like, no, nah, I think we'll go talk to the Gentiles. The Gentiles... None of what Paul knew, none of who he was, none of what separated him and made him someone was useful in that. That's why he ends up telling the Corinthians, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He realized that all of that law and all of that teaching and all of that understanding, well, while it was useful and God didn't waste any of it, he writes Paul, that is, and fellowship with the Holy Spirit, about one-third to a half of the New Testament. I mean, it's fat with his stuff. But, but God says, we're going to go to the Gentiles. Why? Paul, before the Gentiles, had to rely on Jesus entirely. And then he uses Peter, a fisherman. Listen, if you're a fisherman in the first century, you flunked out of rabbi school. I mean, everybody was supposed to grow up and be religious, a spiritual leader. And Peter's a real man of the word. We know that because we have his sermons in the first part of Acts. But Peter would not have been any of our first choice to go to the Jews. Because they're like, don't we have somebody who's actually studied? You know, Peter says of Paul, his stuff's kind of hard to understand. Can you imagine how the other scholars felt to have Peter preaching to them, telling them they needed Jesus? Well, Paul was like our Lord in that he wanted to minister to the Jews. And Jesus came first to his own people, and then, of course, Paul would follow this pattern. He would always... When he went to a town, he'd come to the synagogue first because that's where his Jewish brethren, even though he knows the mission is the Gentiles, he's like, well, I'm going to hit the Jews first. And he would, and he'd preach there, and then they'd have him arrested, or they'd take him out of town and stone him, or something like that would happen almost everywhere he went. That's just how it was. So like Jesus, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. They just didn't want to hear it. In fact, he finally gets his wish, and I've really jumped through a life, you know, alienated from the Lord, persecuting Christians, comes to the Lord, spends years out ministering to the Gentiles. He finally gets his wish. He's in Jerusalem. He's preaching to his Jewish brethren. The Romans have to arrest them to keep them from tearing him limb from limb. And he will spend years in prison. Years. For what crime? For no crime. All he did was preach Jesus. All he did was say the word Gentiles to his Jewish brethren, and they went berserk. So I'm never surprised when I see a riot break out, although I always find it ironic that peace marches can turn into riots, which I've never really put that together. So here's the thing. Paul's perspective, this is the first key, and it's here in in the first part of I, I did say we were going to be um, in, in um, Philippians, right? I should at least read something from it. Well, he calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. You're aware of that, right? I think it actually says it here. The lighting's not the very best, and I have two things. One's real bright, which just makes the other one even dimmer. 
But I'm working all that out. A prisoner of Jesus Christ. I like that. He doesn't say, oh, the Romans or the Jews or these people or those people. And when he writes from prison, which he does a lot, here's a guy like my brother. You couldn't slow him down, right? So, so God says, oh, just put him in prison. I'll have to write from there. I tell Tony, if you're going to write, start writing now. You never know what the Lord will do. But listen, to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, to Timothy, to Philemon, Paul calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And there's a practical application because it reminds me of wherever God has you now, the job you're in, the school you attend, the, the work you're doing, the, the whatever it might be, he has strategically planted you right where he wants you. And he wants to use you there. And if you have the worst boss in the world... Well, we're going to get the people next. We're on circumstances, but I guess they really go together, don't they? If you have what you consider to be the worst boss in the world, don't ever try to ditch out of there because God's got somebody worse than him. If you don't believe it, read the story of Jacob and Laban because God can take and say, look, I'm trying to do something in you and through you that works best in this environment. And you're like, I hate this environment. Yes, but I'm making you more like my son. But this and that, and what about... And we do that, don't we? We question the Lord's wisdom in having us where we are because we can't see how this could be the best. If Paul did that, he could have pouted in prison instead of writing the prison epistles. But he didn't pout. He praised and thanked God and writes these glorious letters. Listen... God has you where he's planted you, and he wants to use you there. That's the bottom line. You may, like Tony and I, have grown up kind of hard. Life wasn't easy when we were kids. It didn't get that easier when we left home. It just we were under a different taskmaster. I thought his dad was hard to live with until I found myself serving the enemy of my soul and didn't even know I was doing that. But... Here's what what I see in Scripture. Joseph, hated and rejected by his own brethren. Some of you have been there. Your family think you're an idiot because you're serving the Lord. Here you are, Wednesday night. I mean, it's bad enough. You go to church on Sunday, but Wednesday too? What are you thinking? I mean, don't you know there's places to go and people to see and things to do besides this? Worship and teaching? What would motivate us to do such a thing? Love of God, the one who loved us first and loved us perfectly. We just want to gather and tell him, Lord, we love you. We're grateful to you. We're thankful. So Joseph, hated, rejected, sold into slavery. Most of you know his story. And then what happens? He serves the Lord faithfully. And I was of the opinion as a young Christian that if I did everything God wanted me to do, everything I was hoping would happen would happen. But it didn't turn out that way. And certainly it didn't for Joseph either because he goes from serving faithfully as a slave, something he should have never been, at least not from human perspective. He had a family. He had brothers. He had a dad who loved him, loved him the most. Now he's serving and he's serving faithfully. And he gets falsely accused. Then he gets put into prison. That's unjust. But 
what happens? He serves faithfully in the prison. Now listen, I've never been in prison. And I'm grateful. I was in juvenile hall once and it freaked me out so bad. It didn't straighten me out. I was just a lot more cautious after that. But I was like, man, I never want to be in a place like this again. And so, well, I could tell you other stories, but I don't know if my brother was ever there because when I met him, he was already a Christian and we haven't talked about everything, believe it or not. But anyway, Joseph ends up miraculously released. You know that, right? I mean, it's like all of a sudden he's in prison and and all this stuff's happening. And by the way, I am convinced that the guy who put him in prison knew Joseph was innocent. Because if you read that whole story, you know, it's the whole wife is like, hey, he came on to me and I, I tried to get away and, you know, got this clothing and all that stuff. Listen, if that were, if, if her husband believed that at all, Joseph would be dead, not in prison. Not only that, I, I just think I like Joseph's response to all of this. You're a younger crowd and I appreciate that. Because, you know, the Bible says flee youthful lust. For me, not really an issue. But free old man lust because it's still a problem. And here's the thing. you got to know. Nobody goes to work on Monday morning and tells a story like Joseph's. Yeah, what happened this weekend? Oh, this gal came on to me and she was hot. Really? And then what happened? I hightailed it out of there. I got out of there so fast. Man, I was just running like crazy. Why? Nobody's going to go to work and tell that story. But they mostly tell stories. They just do. They make it up because if it were all true, it's like, well, they'd be even worse. But the point is this. Joseph literally fled the scene. And then God raises him up. He not only uses him as someone who had been a slave unjustly and falsely accused, unjustly and imprisoned, but now he's like second in command in the nation. What if God were using the circumstance you are in now, the situation you'd do anything to escape to prepare you for something that's so unimaginable that you have to be where you are to even appreciate what's coming? Well, I don't know what he's planned, but I know it's way beyond anything you could hope or dream or envision. It's always that with him. So Joseph is exalted. And Joseph, well, his brothers, it all started with him having dreams. You probably know. If you don't know Joseph's story, you need to read Genesis. Because, listen, it's the beginning. You've got to read Genesis no matter what. I hope you all have. If you haven't, I pray you all will. But Joseph, it all started with him having some dreams and telling his brothers, hey, I had this awesome dream. And, and like I was, I, my sheave was out in the field and your sheaves bowed down to mine. And hey, the whole family has the gift of interpretation. I don't know if you're aware of that. Not just Joseph. That's how God uses him. They're like, what? We're going to bow down to you. Later he has another dream. And he says, the sun, moon, and stars bowed down to me. And his dad has the gift too. He's like, what? Your mom and I going to bow down to you? You know what happens, though? Joseph's brothers sent to Egypt. Why? Famine in the land. They bow down before Joseph, but they don't even recognize him. They don't even know it's him. And he's got to think, this is, this is my dream. It's coming true. And then after dad's death, because i got to press on. 
after dad's death, they're freaking out. They're like, maybe he was just kind to us because of dad. Maybe he's going to get even now. Maybe we're going to get what we deserve. And it's horrible to have a guilty conscience. And can I assure you, the only way to deal with the guilty conscience is confession and repentance. There's no amount of counseling or psychology or, or best effort on your part that will ever make you feel okay about your sin. You confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And I found that, man, it's, I can walk with a clear conscience. I can walk with my head up, not because I've lived a perfect life this week even, but because I serve a Lord who is perfect and forgives me every sin. Well, they come and they're like, hey, Dad, ask us to tell you not to punish us. They're freaking out. They think he's... And listen, listen to his words. Don't be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring it about this day as to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Listen, if Joseph, who's a mere man, can forgive like that, can we not find it in our heart to forgive those who've offended us, who've sinned against us? Some of us have been sinned against grievously. But forgiveness, it's not only required, it's absolutely essential. Here's why. If you harbor bitterness and unforgiveness... You're not actually hurting the person you hate or won't forgive or are bitter toward. You're hurting you. It's you. That's sin. It damages you. It defiles you. The enemy uses it to steal, to kill, and destroy you. Daniel, you know his story. I'll make it very short. Taken and enslaved in the Babylonian captivity. Interestingly enough, he serves faithfully. As did Joseph. He found him set apart early and exalted early, though. Joseph went through this whole imprisonment. Then he was exalted. Daniel ends up exalted and then gets put into, well, the pit. He gets put into these situations. Why? Because of other men's jealousy toward him. He prays and they find a way, knowing he'll pray, to accuse him of doing a crime against. Well, his master, not his heavenly master, but his earthly master. But here's the deal. Accused, on death row, vindicated, released, exalted, continued to serve the Lord. You know, God let the people who were in the Babylonian captivity go back. Very small percentage return home to rebuild. Daniel stays behind. He stays behind and he serves not just in one, but in two, in three, over administrations. The, 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 the rulers come and go, but, but there's Daniel still serving the Lord. Well, Jesus, as you're well aware, hated, rejected, falsely accused, condemned, crucified. It's just a reminder, sin always leads to suffering. I suffer because of my sin. I suffer because people I love sin against me. I suffer when people I love sin and it isn't against me just because I love them. But sin always leads someone to suffer. And in this case, sin led Jesus to suffer. And he prays, as you're aware, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That brings us to the second of the four. And that's people. The enemy not only uses circumstances, he uses people 
And he's out to convince us people are our problem. So, again, if you have a horrible boss, it's the boss. If it wasn't for him, I'd be happy. Or it's my parents if you're at home. Or it's my kids if they're at home. Or it's my wife or, you know, the woman he gave me. Or it's my husband. Or it's never them. It's never them. I have found in marriage, and I've been married, man, it will be... 40 years next year. Is that crazy? I know. They're like, how does a 30-year-old guy be married 40 years? But it will be 40 years next year. Christmas Eve, 1984. Man, I got to tell you, there have been times over the years where I thought, ah, I would be so happy if she would just stop or if she wouldn't or if she would or if she had or didn't. and, And it's never been her. I've learned that the Lord gives you the person who is not just perfect for what you think you need, but for what he knows you need. And so, hey, if you're married and your husband doesn't happen to love you as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, and you're like, that's the rule, that's what you're supposed to be doing, listen, you have a Father in heaven that loves you perfectly. You have Jesus. He loves you the way your husband's supposed to, and he actually does it. I'm not excusing guys. I know what God's called me to, and he's called every husband to be that. But but the same thing. If you're married and you're like, my wife doesn't submit. Well, just love her. Yeah, but she's not submitting. Just love her. Why? God doesn't say love your wife as, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it as long as she submits to you. Nor does he say submit as long as he loves you as Christ loved the church. He gives you one command. We ought to be able to pull off one. And if I realize, man, it's not even in me to do it, well, then it's, Lord, enable me to do what you've called and purposed for me to do. So your problem, my problem, not at work, not at home, not at school, not with your next-door neighbor, although I've had some really good next-door neighbors and some not-so-good. My wife and I lived in 35 houses together. So if you move a lot, we'll talk about that sometime. But um, anyway, the second key, the, the, the first key was having God's perspective. The second key to surviving and thriving, living the abundant life, is sharing his heart for people. You see people through his lens, through his eyes, and you're like, okay, I see what they're doing, but God wants me to love them. I see what they're doing, but Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I ought to be able to pray that too. I ought to be able to do that too. Tony and I used to joke about writing a book together. We had both came up with the same title, ironically enough, Raised by Wolves. And then we thought... We thought it won't really be that encouraging. It might build a bridge, maybe, and maybe it'll be a preface to a book, but not a whole book, because nobody needs to hear more and more of how things weren't what they could have been or should have been. We need to know there's a God who makes them what He intends them to be. So Paul and Timothy, by the way, Philippians one one, back there, bond servants of. Jesus Christ, to the saints in Christ Jesus and Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Listen, a bondservant is a slave, a servant by choice. 
And, and when we understand what it means to choose to do what God's intended, it just opens some things up for us. Remember when Jesus said to someone compels you to go one mile, go an extra mile? If you don't know the background on that, it's sort of like nobody can compel me to go a mile, and I'm certainly not going to. But Roman soldiers in the first century could approach anyone and say, hey, you carry my pack for a mile. You're aware, right? If not, now you are. So either way, you are. And and so carry my pack. And when you said, hey, ah, you look tired, man. It's, It's hot. You're sweating. I'll carry this pack an extra mile for you. Well, now... He has no power. I mean, he's, he's exercised his power over you. He's taken advantage of you. He's required something of you. And you, you basically robbed him of all that by just saying, hey, not only am I willing, I'm going to do it with a good attitude and I'll go twice as far as you required. Listen, that puts you in a position like Paul, like Jesus, to serve God by serving people. And Jesus, of course, came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. He lived, he died for us. So this go the extra mile, that comes right from Jesus. And so that's the first mile, obedience to the law, which is to obey all the laws. The second mile is total grace. That gives you an audience, an opportunity to say, hey, here's what, here's why. Why would you go an extra mile? What's in it for you? Oh, I'm pleasing my Lord who gave his life for me. That's the opportunity, you see. So he says, let your light so shine before men. They'll see your good works. Glorify your Father in heaven. I found that to be a little tricky. And here's why. I kind of like for people to see my good works. And I'm not expecting glory, but I kind of like when people think, whoa, you're really a servant. Well, my wife will tell you otherwise. And I mean, I would jump in front of a car to protect a child, but taking out the trash, not so much. And so, so the, the point is, I want people, naturally I do, I want people to like me. I want them to think I'm a good person. I want them to think I'm, I'm, I have, well, that I'm more like what God intends me to be than I've actually become. And I share that with you because I know that's in every human being. We want something that, listen, he deserves all honor, all praise, all glory, all my righteousness, which I have perfect righteousness. I don't know if you're aware of that. You you won't discover it by hanging out more with me. Just take my word for it. Because I have perfect righteousness because he's imparted that to me. How much righteousness do I add to the pile? None. I have none of my own, only his. So, the respect, the honor, that the goodness, listen, it's all him and he deserves all the glory. Paul actually in Philippians 2.5, take a peek, and these last two we get there quicker. Let this mind be in you. This is the how. The what is to see people through his eyes. The how is let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So, 
So circumstances, they're, they're not what determines who we are and what we do and how fruitful our lives are. People, they're not the determining factor. It's that, hey, I see Jesus and I want to see people through his lens, through his eyes. So I'm going to humble myself and serve him because that's what he does. That's the only way I can represent him. Third area, and that's things. Satan is sly. He uses what we have or what we don't have to trap and stumble us. I remember years ago I heard a song that that, that guy said, I'm I got so much comfort, I'm uncomfortable. And he was just talking about that lifestyle of amassing stuff more and more and more and more and more. And, 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 and listen, Paul thought he had all he needed to be happy. I'm sure David thought, man, I'm king. I'm on the top of the world. What more could I ever want? Solomon, king and the richest guy who ever, world, who ever lived. Job. He was rich, he had a big family, he had health, he had everything. All that was stripped away so that that he could see that it's not any of that. It's just the Lord. It's just him. Paul's testimony, and he gives it to us in, in, well, this same book. He tells us he was circumcised the eighth day. That was important in their culture, in their heritage that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin. That's the king's tribe, you see. Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning the righteousness in the law, blameless. And then he says this, but what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. I indeed count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And he says to have his righteousness, not mine, to be found in him, to attain to the power of his resurrection. But here's the point. Paul says all I was and he was something. All I was and he was someone. He said I had to put it away. All I had and he had. He had to put it away. He had to see it from God's perspective. And so if you have a lot, then you're a steward of all that. If you don't have much and you're thinking, man, if I could just have stuff, then I'd be happy. The people with stuff aren't happy. The more stuff, the more stress. You've got to get alarms to guard it and you've got to get a place to store it. And, and, but but here, here's the bottom line of it. Paul says, I count them as rubbish. You know what that word means, right? It's dung. It's, well, I won't get any more graphic than that. We know what it is. And I can't imagine you look at your most prized possession and you say, it's just dung. Dung. I don't know. I want to see like this. I want to be like this. He says, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection, in the fullness, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Listen, when we die, and we all die unless we're raptured and we still leave it all behind, everything we own, everything we have, everything we've worked for, everything we've aspired to have, we leave it all behind. The only thing you can take with you to heaven is people. 
everything else left behind. That's why Paul could say to live is Christ because it really was for him. To die is gain because that would be true for him. He says in that same passage, I'm in a straight between the two. I want to go and to be with the Lord. But I know it's more important for me to stay and minister to you. Now, what an attitude. Finally, the last one. And we'll pray. Because the, the last, and there's so much more, but these four so common circumstances, people, things, the enemy uses worry. Now, I don't want to add trouble to your trouble. Did you know that worry is a sin? So if you're like, well, I'm so worried, and you come up for prayer, and I'm like, well, I've already told you, it's sin. That doesn't mean we wouldn't pray for it. But, but it, it, here's the problem. It's a common sin, and one we easily justify. There's stuff to worry about. I'm making less money. The money isn't going as far. I got a baby on the way or a baby just came or my, my parents are getting older and, and they need my help or I don't know how we're going to make it work. That is so common. If you think that's a problem just in the UK, then you're, you're not looking at the bigger picture. It's a problem everywhere. But here's the deal. Jesus called the first disciples to forsake all and follow him. How much is all? I know. I know you know. Little teeny word that means everything. Forsake all. And when I don't, when I'm worried because of, it almost always goes back to things, my stuff, and, and then the people and the circumstances, but I'm robbed of peace. I'm robbed of joy. I'm robbed of appreciation and thanksgiving, expectation. Here's Paul's prescription, and I conclude with it. I think it's in chapter 4, verse 6. Is it? Because I just say verse 6 in this pad. I don't know what I could be thinking. <clears throat> be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. He's saying, turn those cares into prayers. Turn that worry into worship. The prescription, stop being anxious, but pray, supplicate, thank the Lord that he's for you and with you and will never leave or forsake you. And here's the promise, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Hey, if we'll do the first, he'll do the second. We pray instead of stress. We pray instead of worry. We pray instead of, well, he says he'll guard our hearts and minds. He'll garrison them. It's like he sets a guard, a watch over them. And there's something else, and then we'll worship. It says this peace surpasses understanding. What does that mean? That when I'm praying, I'm often asking for understanding. Okay, Lord, if you're not going to get me out of the situation, at least help me understand what you're trying to do in the situation. He doesn't do it. He can, but oftentimes he wants me just to trust him. Why? That's what's glorifying to him. That's faith in him. That's what he's looking for. So he promises not to give me understanding, but to give me a peace that doesn't require understanding. I don't have to get it, Lord. I don't have to understand it. I, don't, I just know I can trust you in the midst of it. So I pray tonight. For every one of us and for all the people whose lives will influence this week, tomorrow, later tonight, the people we'll interact with, that we'll see it. It's not our circumstance. 
that it's not the people, that, that it's not our stuff or lack of it. It's not even our, our worry. All of that is what the enemy's using to get our eyes off of Jesus, who so loves us. He gave his life for us. Lord, I thank you for this precious flock. And Lord, I know that they're getting to know how much you love them because you've given them a pastor, Lord, who's not just, well, one of a handful of teachers that that I so respect and, and am so blessed by, but perhaps, Lord, the one more than any other who really does love like you, who really does spend his life for others, who really does sacrifice for others. And Lord, I'm not here to exalt my little brother, but to exalt you. And I know that's your work in him, your transformation of him. And I pray that for this beautiful, precious body of believers, that you'll have your way, Lord, that you'll continue the wonderful, radical, life-transforming work you began. I pray it in Jesus' name.